Although it is early in the game, America's 2016 presidential season is stalked by fear and suspicion, much of it raised by one man. I'm Donald Trump, and I approve this message. The politicians can pretend it's something else, but Donald Trump calls it radical Islamic terrorism. Trump plays on people's fears about immigrants. When Mexico sends its people, they're not sending their best. They're not sending you. They're not sending you. They're sending people that have lots of problems, and they're bringing those problems with us. They're bringing drugs, they're bringing crime, they're rapists, and some, I assume, are good people. Asks dubious questions about President Barack Obama's birth. Three weeks ago when I started, I thought he was probably born in this country, and now I really have a much bigger doubt than I did before. But based on what? And, and you know what? His grandmother in Kenya said he was born in Kenya, and she was there and witnessed the birth. And as for the Iran nuclear deal... What's going on there? You, that's why I say, I mean, some people say it's worse than stupidity. There's something going on that we don't know about. I mean, honestly. And you almost think it. I'm not saying that, and I'm not a conspiracy person. <laughs> she said, we are. We're saying it. If we keep going like this, folks, we're not going to have a country left. We're not going to have a country. We're not going to have a country. We're like a dumping ground for the world. We're a dumping ground. Donald Trump's conspiratorial worldview has taken hold of the Republican Party, but it is not something new in American politics. Fifty years ago, at the height of the Cold War, Professor Richard Hofstadter coined a phrase to describe the kind of rhetoric Trump indulges in, or seduces with the paranoid style. It is the flip side to America's sunnier myth of a democratic society where anybody can make it from a log cabin to the White House. And it has a long history in the U.S. There hasn't been a period in American public life in which paranoia has not been present. The question has always been to what degree does it influence the larger politics? Richard Parker, lecturer at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, traces the paranoid tendency back to the 17th century. There was politics that fed paranoia. There were the circumstances of life, meaning the threat of Native American conflict. There were always the questions of disease, including smallpox, but all sorts of other diseases. Uh, and then the larger theological questions of Protestant versus Catholic, and then finally of whether or not the end times were imminent and whether or not this would bring Jesus back to earth all played in a complicated stew uh, that gave rise to this early paranoia. It's easy to forget how closely tied the New England colonies were to the mother country in the second half of the 17th century. All of English politics, the Civil War, the Protestant Catholic machinations surrounding the Restoration, and then the Glorious Revolution, played out in an exaggerated way on the other side of the Atlantic. So religion, in the early days of American history, was one key source of suspicion. Catholics were seen to be everywhere undermining the nation, even though there weren't that many. You have to remember that in the very first census taken in 1790 of the roughly 4 million people living in America, only about 25,000 of them were uh, Roman Catholic and only about 2,500 were Jewish. This, this we know because early censuses actually asked religious identity, which the U.S. Census has not asked since the 1930s. So we know how tiny the Catholic population was, and we know uh, that Protestants of all kinds, from Anglicans to Puritans to Presbyterians, 
were deeply suspicious of Catholicism, uh, not just as a religious force, but as allied with England's uh, great arch enemy, the French. Another source of fear was the secret societies common among the educated elites, says Richard Parker. The Illuminati, the Crosicrucians, the Masons, these are all uh, quite mysterious and for me at least, because I don't buy into most of the paranoia around them, a kind of charming cabal, the paranoia around which is uh, representative of uh, a widespread fear that really is an expression of political struggle. So let's let's think about this for a minute. A number of early presidents, uh, like Washington and Jefferson, were members of the Masons, the Freemasons. In the late 18th century, secret Freemason lodges spread around Europe. The secrecy enabled people to more freely discuss the radical Enlightenment texts, which challenged divine right monarchy. When influential men gather in secret societies, it's impossible for people excluded from their ranks not to feel suspicious about what goes on in their meetings. In the late 1820s, anti-Mason feeling had grown so strong that in the U.S. an anti-Masonic political party was founded. It's the first party that actually inaugurates conventions as the place where candidates are nominated. and otherwise plays a very interesting role in the development of the American party system and the American presidential campaign. The anti-Masons, in fact, won offices for a number of their candidates at the state level and in combination with others won some Senate seats. And so uh, we're a political force. But again, these accusations that Masons were um, at the heart of government and uh, that the secret signs that would appear on American currency, the triangle and the oculus, the single eye that show up on uh, American paper currency even today, were all signs of Masonic conspiracy, wasn't simply paranoia in in the sense of being unhinged from the social political uh, world, but in fact deeply rooted in a political struggle for control of the nation's politics. That struggle for control quickly coalesced around two competing worldviews, each deeply suspicious of one another, each accusing the other's leader of seeking to undermine democracy by aspiring to become king and curtailing liberty. According to Peter Janowski, who has recorded all the presidential campaign songs going back to 1800 for the Smithsonian Institution. The parties were the Federalists, John Adams, and the Democrat Republicans, which was Thomas Jefferson. And this was the first election where there really were parties because uh, Washington had been elected by acclamation in 92, 1792, and 1796. So you had the first contested election. Federalists, be on your guard. Look sharp to what you're doing. Your foes you see are working hard to bring about your ruin. Yankee Doodle, keep it up. Yankee Doodle dandy. Mind the music and the step and with the girls be handy. There's not a man among you all but what sincerely glories to help affect the destined fall of Democrats and Tories. Yankee Doodle, keep it up, Yankee Doodle dandy. Mind the music and the step and with the girls be handy. The tune is jaunty, but the words are harsh. Foes bringing about ruin wicked action, trampled down beneath your feet, underlining the violent suspicion political factions had of one another. 
The decades and centuries rolled by. The roots of the nation grew deeper, but the fear of vast plots against America never seemed to go away. The closest analogy, I think, in American political history to some of the things going on today in our politics is in the period right before the Civil War, the 1850s, the Know-Nothing Party, as they were called. Eric Foner, professor of history at Columbia University. The Know-Nothings were a nativist group that is hostile to immigrants. They were called the Know-Nothings because they began as a secret society called the Order of the Star-Spangled Banner, very patriotic, and supposedly they were instructed, if somebody asked about this organization, to say, I know nothing. It's secret. Who was in the know-nothings? Who were the know-nothings? Well, they attracted a lot of people. They rose to power right at the time two things were happening. One, a massive influx of immigrants from Ireland, very poor, of course, fleeing the famine, who very quickly settled in major cities, uh, New York, Boston, Philadelphia, Chicago. They plugged themselves in at the very bottom of the economic ladder as unskilled laborers, domestic workers, They could vote, the men. One thing people don't realize, in the 19th century, you didn't have to be a citizen to vote. You could vote if you declared your intention to be a citizen. And they quickly joined the democratic political machines of these cities, and they augmented democratic party uh, power very dramatically. So who were opposed to them? One, Whigs, the other party, who found themselves swamped by these Irish voters. Two, skilled native-born workers who found their wages declining blamed it on unskilled labor coming in from abroad, with some merit, but this was also a period of rapid economic change, the beginnings of industrialization. So a lot of these craft people were also under pressure just from economic change, not purely from immigration. The resonance with today is clear. Know-nothingism grew out of the beginnings of the industrialization of America, and an immigrant surge. Today, the U.S. is going through a prolonged period of de-industrialization, along with an immigrant surge. We are going through, and have been going through, a major economic transformation, de-industrialization, globalization. Many Americans have benefited from this. Many Americans have suffered from it. And if you look at Donald Trump, for example, uh, his support, supposedly, if you believe public opinion polls, comes disproportionately from white, native-born, working-class men, particularly, who don't have a lot of education and have really been pushed to the side by the rapid economic changes of the last two decades. The Civil War ended slavery and preserved the Union. It did not end suspicion and fear, particularly in the former slave states of the American South. The rhetoric was, oh no, blacks are now taking over everything there, you know, it's black reconstruction, black power, black supremacy, which it certainly wasn't. And then you had all these fantasies of blacks going around raping people, just like Trump called these immigrants rapists. Somehow, whenever race gets into the picture in American discourse, rape, fears of rape, paranoia about rape is not far from the surface. But again, there were concrete interests involved here, particularly the interests of upper class white Southerners, planters, who were desperate to get these blacks back to work on the plantations as a low-wage labor force. And they, they encouraged a lot of this conspiratorial racial thinking. Professor Foner points out that there is another perpetual source of fear and hostility, banks and bankers. Money was a major 
political issue in the late 19th century. You remember William Jennings Bryan, his cross of gold speech, which got him the Democratic nomination for president in 1896. Harvey was a predecessor. The gold standard was ruining farmers, which, by the way, to some extent it was. Uh, there were many, many reasons for that, but Coyne Harvey said the reason is the gold standard and bankers, a conspiracy of international bankers. Sometimes he said Jewish bankers like the Rothschild, sometimes just bankers. International bankers have imposed the gold standard on us, and it's ruining American farmers, and we've got to break free. Despite the fears about foreign banks and immigrants, by the 1920s, America was the preeminent industrial power in the world. But fear continued to haunt the heartland, heated up by the 20th century's new invention, mass media. Communism, linked to the international Jewish conspiracy, was the weekly theme of Father Charles Coughlin's extremely popular radio show. My dear friends, that among other things in the National Union for Social Justice, we are Christian in so far as we believe in Christ's principle of love your neighbor as yourself. And with that principle, I challenge every Jew in this nation to tell me that he does not believe in it. There is no need of communizing all the factories and the fields and the forests and the mines under a new kind of God made of flesh and blood and clay and hatred. In the years after World War II, Senator Joseph McCarthy found, or imagined, evidence of communist infiltrators everywhere in the American government. I think those of us who have been elected by the American people to man the watchtowers, unless we have the intelligence to recognize the traitors, and then, if I may use a word which we use in Wisconsin, unless we have the guts to name them, we should be taken down from those watchtowers and should not be representing the American people. And I don't intend to ever avoid giving the names of traitors, giving the names of communists, when I discover them in an important position. The air went out of the McCarthy balloon when he began searching for subversives in the U.S. Army. But as he fell, Robert Welch founded the John Birch Society in 1958. We believe, and as many others do today, that the communist movement is merely one arm of an immense, tremendously powerful master conspiracy. What is the other arm? Oh, this gigantic octopus has many arms, which now writhe and twist all over the world. One arm is ideological socialism, with such tentacles as the Fabian Society in England and the Americans for Democratic Action in the United States. The John Birch Society and its paranoid anti-communist worldview took hold in the well-off suburbs immediately south of Los Angeles in Orange County, California. These communities had sprung up almost overnight as Orange County became a hub of what President Dwight D. Eisenhower, suspected of communist sympathies by Welch, named the military-industrial complex. Orange County was at the forefront of something which was wider and broader. Lisa McGurr, professor of history at Harvard University and author of Suburban Warriors, a history of Orange County in the 50s and 60s. It's at the forefront of kind of a social base that's being built in the Republican Party of a new libertarian and religious right. California is where America's liberal and hard conservative tendencies tectonically grind against each other. 
The fault line between conservatives and liberals is most glaring along the boundary separating Los Angeles County from Orange County. And the newcomers to Orange County, who had by and large grown up in the Midwest and South, were shocked at what they found. They hit California. They hit Orange County, which, you know, is in some ways their dream. But it also proves a kind of nightmare in that there is a whole nother set of kind of uh, cultural norms that conflict with their own beliefs. So California, of course, is not only home to a staunch conservatism in Orange County, it's very much home to a powerful form of liberalism. I mean, Edmund Brown won the governorship in 1960. It was, of course, the home to the student movement in Berkeley and San Francisco. Los Angeles had a powerful gay liberation movement. And, of course, Los Angeles also was home to uh, large numbers of African Americans who, in the 1960s, um, built a new social movement around black power. And so these men and women see very close to home a set of developments that they perceive of as threatening. Uh, and their anti-communism has to be understood as a really, really broad umbrella. It's not simply a kind of concern over a threat from the USSR. It's a concern over a threat to a whole host of developments in the 1960s, what they consider a kind of subversive developments. In Orange County, the John Birch Society quickly grew into an important grassroots movement, leafleting, getting the message out neighbor to neighbor, organizing for political candidates. Birch Society members forged the template for what has become the dominant political force of the last three and a half decades in America. The conservative movement took off already very early in the 60s. So it's around 1960, 61. When JFK comes to the presidency, there's a new assertive liberalism at the national level. There's also kind of progressive educational experimentation taking place in public schools. They're moving out of communities, bringing their children into these new communities, and they're confronted with these new kind of liberal approaches to education, uh, whether it be sex education, whether it be, you know, talking about the United Nations in public schools. So they're confronted with these new forms of liberalism at the very local level, plus some men and women on the school board who are, for example, favorable toward the American Civil Liberties Union. All of those to them are they lump under a rubric of uh, sort of threats to kind of their traditional values, to the American way of life. They identify them as a form of collectivism and of subversion. In the Orange County mindset, collectivism and subversion were an extreme threat to the American way of life and needed the kind of response that a man like 1964 Republican nominee for president Barry Goldwater could provide. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. And let me remind you also that moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. A similar kind of language, but spoken in a more friendly tone, put the spotlight on a man who campaigned vigorously for Goldwater. Ronald Reagan. The fact that it is extreme in its rhetoric doesn't mean that these men and women are not rational political actors and cannot make 
hugely successful political career. So the best example, I think, is somebody like Ronald Reagan, who, of course, was president of the United States for many years, as well as in the 60s, governor of California. And in 1960, he declared um, in what you would definitely think of as kind of paranoid fashion, pointing out that one of the foremost authorities on communism in the world today had said, we have 10 years, not 10 years to make up our minds, but 10 years to win or lose. By 1970, the world will be all slave or all free. That overwrought language is an essential part of the American weave, says Professor McGurr. This apocalyptic strand is something which comes out of an embrace of a kind of evangelical and or a fundamentalist evangelical tradition of millennial thought in the United States, of apocalyptic thought, of a, an embrace of biblical dispensationalism. And if you link it back to that, what seems really irrational, you know, the sort of notion of the UN as part of the one world order of the Antichrist, one can better understand if one sees it coming out of religious traditions and religiosity, which had powerful roots in American life. Goldwater and Reagan's extreme language was what inspired Richard Hofstadter to coin the phrase the paranoid style in American politics. Columbia University professor Eric Foner thinks Hofstadter, who supervised his doctoral thesis, overstated his case. The reason I don't like the paranoid style as a phrase or concept is two. One, it lumps together under that rubric movements which have nothing to do with each other, movements of the left, right, center, it is a style, of course, but I think it deflects attention from the actual substance of what these people are saying. And second of all, it allows many people who, people I know, who are critics of these groups who would never associate, to just dismiss them out of hand. Once you say they're paranoid, you don't have to even listen to what their program is and what their grievances are. And, you know, all these groups arise out of real grievances. I'm not saying they don't vastly exaggerate and fall into these conspiracy theories, but they have grievances which they try to address. In this election, there is a new source of fear and grievance. Globalization has actually spawned tribalization at the same time. In a way, that's logical. When there is no sense of identity on, a na on an international level, people cling to their local identities. People are not just free-floating, despite what the economists tell us, people are not just rational, free-floating people, individual, profit-maximizing individuals who will just up and go wherever it is. Okay, I can get a better job in uh, South America, I'm just going there. No, that's not how people operate, you know. That's a whole other question. But the tribal identities seem to be growing at the same time when the power of nations and localities is diminishing. In this bad-tempered presidential season, local politics carries on as usual in America. In Charleston, South Carolina, scene of one of 2015's worst mass shootings, a poignant rendition of the Star-Spangled Banner was played at the inauguration of the city's new mayor, John Tecklenburg. The day before, about 45 miles south of Charleston on Edisto Island, a pair of men in their 70s, Eddie Wernz and Bob Sandifer, well-educated and well-off, tried to explain Donald Trump's appeal. As Professor Foner suggested, they do not sound particularly paranoid. Donald Trump 
is an outgrowth of the dissatisfaction that men like myself are having with the Republican Party. Eddie Wurntz. It's like a man that lives in a house and he has a wife and he has children and they go on a vacation. And uh, he comes back to the house to find that the raccoons have taken over his basement. They have torn up his insulation. They have chewed through the wiring in his house, which is going to cause him to rewire his house. They've broken the windows, and the smell is just horrendous. He then calls the raccoon man to come get rid of the raccoons. The raccoon man comes to the house, and here's where Donald Trump comes in. I don't care at all anymore about how many times the raccoon man's been divorced. I don't care that he has the plumber's crack where he wears his pants. I don't think Donald Trump is good at many things, but he might get the raccoons out and get rid of the stench in Washington. As Wernt speaks, Bob Sandifer nods along. Trump has instilled some hope in a lot of people. See, from a distance to me, I don't see where the hope is in that. It sounds to me like desperation. What Trump is saying he's going to do, he's going to basically go in and clean it out. And he's going to go back to, if you will, the kind of federal government that we would be less fearful of. We fear the federal government very much. The numbers say this is one of the safest eras in American life. But for some reason, fear is the theme in this election season. Maybe data can't tell us everything. It certainly can't measure the impact of Eddie Vernz's recent experiences. I went to my granddaughter's play. She's eight years old. As I walked into the front, there were two armed guards of City of Charleston Police Department were standing at that front door. And I asked, I said, what are they doing here? They were there at the order of the city of Charleston Police Department to make sure that nothing happened at that play. The other day, I took my granddaughter and my son and and his wife and my grandson to a movie called Star Wars. And there was an armed guard standing inside that theater. And I asked my son, what is he doing here? And my son told me, He's here because of all the crazies we have in this country now. And where the fear and suspicion of the crazies and the federal government will lead in November's presidential election may surprise pundits and observers of America all over the world, says Professor Eric Foner. It is very possible that an extreme nativist, an extreme uh, nationalist of that kind, a bigot really, will be the Republican nominee. It's very possible. And once you're the Republican nominee, I don't care who you are, you have a shot at winning. I'd say the odds would be that such a person would not win, but I'm not betting my house on that. And regardless of who wins, paranoid fears, it seems, will continue to darken American dreams. Oh, no.